Welcome to the Grace at a Glance podcast from Grace Church of Linnets and Grace Creative. We are a Jesus church where the gospel is central, where we love Jesus, build people, and lead revival. Thanks for joining us. Church, it's a pleasure to be here with you today as we conclude our All Church Journey Blueprints. Uh, over the last six weeks, as a church, between our children and our students and our adults, we have asked you all to participate in reading a book called The Master Plan of Evangelism by Robert Coleman. Uh, and we asked you to join a group and kind of go through that book study together. And then we were preaching on it, and our kids were studying it, and our youth were studying it, all in a concentrated effort to get us on the same page about what evangelism is supposed to look like for a church, specifically for our church as we move forward. And if you didn't participate in the whole journey, that's okay. You're still going to understand what's happening in the message, so don't worry about it. Although we'd love to encourage you to pick up a book. Uh, It's been a really wonderful six weeks. You know, when you pick up the book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, it kind of has one of those titles that fools you. Because you believe you're going to open it up and you're going to look at it and you're going to get like six to nine steps on how to win somebody to Jesus, right? Like it's a playbook of some kind that you're going to get on how to go out and evangelize and win a lost world. What you actually get when you read the book is a case study on how Jesus made disciples. That's what you get. You find out exactly why Jesus chose the 12 disciples that he did, how he invested in them, uh, what he ended up pouring into them, and how he brought them from a place of unbelief to belief that he really was the Son of God. And what you learn is that Jesus' master plan of evangelism is disciple-making. That's how Jesus won people into the kingdom. You need to remember that when Jesus called the 12 disciples, those first 12 men, you realize they were unbelievers, right? They didn't have saving faith that Jesus was the Son of God. These were were Jewish men. They were God-fearers, but they were completely lost, just like anybody would have been lost. And yet he invited them into a relationship, and in that relationship, he began to teach them all about the kingdom of God. He chose them. He taught them about the kingdom of God. He showed them what the kingdom of God looked like in daily practice. And then here's what he did. He let them practice the ways of the kingdom of God here on earth, and he journeyed with them through that process, and he would help shape and rethink, uh, help them reshape and rethink everything they understood about their own personal relationship with God the Father, and he showed them how to love God the Father the way he loved God the Father, and then at the end of his life, he said, now go and do that with other people. Go and make disciples, and at some point in time in that three-year period, Those 12 people that journeyed Jesus with went from unbelief to belief. They went from having no saving relationship with God through the work of Jesus Christ, having faith that he was the Son of God, to being the very first people who had saving faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And then they were told to go out and do the same thing Jesus did, to help other people on a one-by-one, personal relationship basis understand who Jesus was understand his teachings, helping them to obey his commands, that first and foremost, you love God the Father with all your heart, soul, and mind, and then second, you love other people as yourself. Then in that process, you grow them in their faith, you grow them in your hope, you grow them in their love, and you have now made a disciple 
Because that person who experiences the love of Jesus in their life, and they know Jesus personally, now they go out and make a disciple. The process of making disciples that way is Jesus' master plan of evangelism. That's how he planned on reaching a lost world. Now, when I use the word evangelism or evangelize, there's a lot of weight behind that word in your mind because you live in a high gospel context culture. We're going to talk a little bit about that. But what I want to do this morning is I want to take us through a history. How did we end up with our current understanding of the word evangelism? What is our current methods as a result? We're really going to take a look at the changing culture in which we live and understand why our methods will need to start adapting here relatively soon based on the context that in which we live. And then third, we're going to see that we need to implement Jesus' master plan of evangelism, disciple-making as our primary method of evangelism as a church. So let's dive right in. What is our modern form of evangelism? Now, when you think about evangelism, you may think about any number of things that come to mind. And I would say for Christians who are 30 and older, those who of you who have grown up in the church or have been a part of a church periphery of some kind, you probably start thinking of evangelism methods. Because the church for the last hundred years has put a lot of emphasis on teaching you how to be an evangelist. I'm going to do a seminar, I'm going to create a special curriculum, I'm going to bring you into a room, and I'm going to give you all the tools you need to go out there and win somebody to Jesus. And usually it's like a five or six or seven step process that you have been trained in. Uh, and there's all kinds of different ones. If you're between the ages of 20 and 40 and you grew up in the church, you probably went through something called Dare to Share, which is a curriculum designed to help you to learn how to share your faith. If you're a little bit older than that, maybe 40 to 55, you probably went through something called Evangelism Explosion, or at least you had the opportunity to hear about it or maybe even participate in it to some degree. Before that, and it's still currently in some places, there's a lot of people who do door-to-door evangelism. They just knock on people's doors, and when they open up, you say, have you heard the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ? Right? We call them Jehovah's Witness. We're not good. <laughs> I'm not going there. Sorry. <laughs> there's open-air preaching. You've seen that around. I think some of you probably also are familiar with Bible tracts. How many of you have received a gospel tract or a Bible tract in your life? Real quick show of hands. That's a lot of you, Okay. Uh, you know, that's a, a really normative way of doing evangelism, and it happens all the time. My, my neighbor Jim, when we lived in Colorado, Jim's like the most wonderful man you've ever met in your entire life, uh, and he just loved the Lord so much, and Jim was 80 years old uh, at the time that we started becoming friends. Jim was an evangelist, but the method of evangelism that Jim had grown accustomed with was Bible tracts. So he would give out hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tracts a week, okay, all the time giving them out, to the point where he wanted people to know Jesus so much, even though and he only had this one method, he would actually, he told me this story, he would walk around our neighborhood with a slingshot in his back pocket, and he would take out a Bible track and fold it up, and if they had like a glass sliding door and a, and a patio, he would shoot it onto their, onto their patio. He wanted people to have the gospel. And listen, it was totally sincere, totally genuine. But that is the method of evangelism he knew, and he took it to heart to try and get people the gospel message. A lot of us know about event evangelism or maybe crusade evangelism, the whole Billy Graham method of the 60s and 50s, 60s, 70s. Some of you maybe even have gone to an event like that or you've been there where you get a whole bunch of lost people or Christian people into a room and you preach the gospel publicly. Others of you, you've been trained in methods of apologetics, which is a way to reason your faith with people who are skeptics or atheists. 
There's lots and lots of methodologies that we have developed to help Christians share their faith or evangelize a lost world. But all of those things are just that. They're methods. They are tools. It's a way of doing something. And methods are always changing to adapt to their culture, their time, and their place. They, they have to change. I mean, just look at the last 75 years. How many different methods of evangelism have been brought to the church for the church to reach the lost world? Lots. Because there's always trying to find new methods to do this thing of evangelizing a world. But here's what I want to do this morning. I want to look at the theology behind evangelism. Because if you don't have right theology, you will have bad methodology. Okay? Right theology is what you believe about God and his story and his commands. What is true in that space? And if you don't have a really strong theology of evangelism, you walk out and you start creating really bad methodologies. Friends, the last 30 years in the United States, there's been a lot of really bad methodologies being perpetuated. The words today, where are they at? Being perpetuated by the church in negative ways. If you are 40 or under, there is a movement of people who have grown up in the church who are now doing what's called deconstruction. They are deconstructing their faith. And they're deconstructing their faith because the methods that they were taught on how to live the Gospels are, have been hurtful for them in some way, shape, or form as the church continues to advance bad methodologies. And what happens is you get into your 30s and your 40s and you start reading scripture and you compare that with your historical experience and you say, man, I, as I look at who Jesus was and what he did and how he won people to the kingdom and how he loved people and I see the way the church behaves, there's, there's a disconnect for me. And so they start to deconstruct their faith because they've been hurt by bad methodologies. And what happens is if you take apart the methodology, oftentimes you end up taking apart the theology. Because whether you understand this or not, the way in which you experience somebody's methodology to reach you for the gospel tells you a lot about what they believe about the gospel. Right? Bad methodologies can teach a really bad theology. Let me give you an example. If my message of the gospel is that God is love and that God loves you, but the way in which I convey that to you is hurtful and shaming and, and guilt-ridden or something else. What does that tell you about God? It actually tells me that maybe God doesn't love me. Because the message is love, but the methodology was hurtful and damning or damaging to that individual. Neil Postman has a book that he wrote in the 1980s called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And if you're a communications scholar or you take any communications courses at the undergrad level, they'll make you read this book. Uh, and there's a phrase in there that you have probably heard, even if you don't know it comes from him. The phrase is, the medium is the message. It doesn't really matter what you say. If you say something using the wrong medium, the, the wrong pathway, it confuses the listener. This is why communication is so critical when it comes to helping people hear and listen to the gospel. So let's start with a really good theology so that we can end up with a great methodology, which is Jesus' method of evangelism, which is disciple-making. Let's take a look at the word evangelism. The word evangelism is not in the Bible. What? It's not there. The word evangelism is not in the Bible. The word evangelize comes from the word evangel, which is a Latin word, and it means, in plain English, the good news. It comes from the Greek word euagelion, which means good news. And your word gospel that you have, that you'll see throughout the New Testament as you read it, comes from the Anglo-Saxon word Godspell, which means good story. 
So the word evangelism is a loaded word with a lot of context behind it inside your mind, but that word's not even found in the Bible. It's a word we've co-opted to share one very simple thing. Evangelism, the gospel, is really simply this. Sharing the good story of what Jesus has done for you so that someone else might experience it themselves. That's what the gospel is. The good story of what Jesus has done for me so that somebody else can experience it for themselves. It's just sharing the good story. We want people to hear the good story about who Jesus is. Now evangelism is sharing the good story that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Savior, that he is the Son of God. Now how many of you have, uh, you know the hymn, Blessed Assurance? You know the hymn, Blessed Assurance? The course of Blessed Assurance has really great theology because it says this, This is my story. Okay, it's your story. The day long. We could keep going, probably. (laughs) But you got it right. This is my story. When we teach people that your assurance in Jesus is your story first, it's for you, it's your gospel, it's your good story, your good story about who Jesus is that you get to share with other people. Now, the Apostle Peter, he lived in a high gospel context culture as well. There was a lot of people who were practicing of of Judaism, or they were God-fearers. And when Peter went up to preach on the day of Pentecost, he got up to preach the good story that Jesus was the Messiah. That's what he got up to do. He got into a public square, and he preached the good story that Jesus is the Messiah. And when he got up to preach, he had to rely on the fact that many people had enough context to understand it. And when a, as a Jewish person, man, if I was in the first century, for hundreds of years, my people were waiting for this Messiah. We were expectantly looking forward, God, to deliver us this Messiah, to set us free from our Roman oppressors. It's what we deeply, deeply wanted as a people group. And that's 500, 600, 700 years of promises that we've been looking forward to and banking on. Now, you are 2,000, post, 2000 years post the deliverance of that promise. But if I'm a first century Jew, I desperately want the Messiah to come. And the good news is that there will be a Messiah who's from, the son of, who's from the throne and the line of David who will overthrow my oppressors and rule on the throne of David for all of history. And I was looking forward to that. So when Peter got up to say, I have really good news, I have a good story to share with you, Jesus is the Messiah, everybody in their mind heard, yes, the one who will deliver us from the Roman oppressors is here. But they had to not just proclaim it, they had to now make them into disciples. They had to teach them more because they had a large enough context to understand what it means that Jesus was the Messiah. They didn't have enough context to understand what kind of Messiah Jesus actually was. Yes, Jesus is the promised king of Israel. Yes, he sat on the throne of David, but he did not come to overthrow your human oppressor. He came to overthrow your spiritual oppressors of Satan, sin, and death. And that in his work on the cross, there would be a sacrifice that was good enough for the forgiveness of all sin of all people who would believe. And that when they believed, there would be removal of that sin from their life. They would then be free from eternal death. They would have victory over the enemy of their soul and their devil. And that everyone who believes would have life and life today. And the Holy Spirit would indwell them and empower them and give them saving life. And the same Holy Spirit that indwells them and empowers them, when they go to tell others, they can share through the power of the Spirit this good story of what Jesus has done in them and delivered them from so that others might have faith and believe. Now this good story, this gospel, it does take faith to believe it. 
It's really easy to believe in a physical Messiah. If I were to say, hey, uh, friends, Grace Church, really good news. Jesus is here. He's in the lobby. He's going to walk in these doors, and he's going to deliver the United States from whatever kind of a- things that ail us and woe us, and he'll become the, the king of our nation. I think there's a lot of us who'd be like, all right, yeah, bring on Jesus. And he was really here in person, and you saw him, and you were looking for Like, there's something tangible about that. It doesn't take faith to believe it because he's here, right? He's going to do it. But we have faith. Faith is, is not something that's tangible. Faith is, is experiential. It's, it's spiritual in its very essence. But where does faith come from? What does Romans ten seventeen say? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. So if we want people to have faith that Jesus is this Messiah, the one who delivers them from the oppressor of spiritual sin and death, the only way that that faith is going to materialize, this spiritual thing will take root and come to life, is if they hear the message of the good news. They have to actually hear it. They have to hear the good story, and through hearing the good story, it produces faith in their life. Friends, we want people to hear the good story about Jesus. We should get excited to tell people about the good story about Jesus, of what he's done for me, what he can do for them. After all, Jesus told us to do this. This is Mark chapter 15, verse 14. Jesus said to the disciples, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. Proclaim the good story. And by the way, the word proclaim does not mean necessarily to preach. It just means to share, to tell, to teach, to to bring people into an understanding of this good story to all of creation so that some will believe. But the question you've got to ask now is, as a disciple, what method am I to use? How am I supposed to share this good story with many other people? And I would wager for the last 1,600 years, preaching has been the primary method through which we want the good news to go forth. And we do that because preaching can exist in a culture that has a high gospel context. So what is a high gospel context? It's a context where there is a base of Christianity or Judaism so that when you bring forth the story of the Messiah, people can fill in all the blanks. And it gives you context to go out and preach. This is what the Apostle Peter did. He got up and he preached, as I already mentioned. This is also what the Apostle Paul did. The Apostle Paul would go from town to town to town. He'd first go to the Jewish synagogues and he would proclaim the good story publicly. He'd preach in that context. And then people there would come to believe, and then he would start to disciple them and move them forward. And the Jewish people knew the promised story, so they knew how to receive the gospel. So they had to live in a high gospel context. You, as followers of Jesus today in North America, you live in a high gospel context culture. Probably uh, everyone in the United States, to some degree or another, has heard the name of Jesus. Whether they've heard it profanely or if they've heard it spoken with reverence, they've heard the name. Probably everyone has seen a cross somewhere here in and around, whether it's on top of a church or on a necklace that somebody wears. They've seen the cross. They may not know the person, they may not know the significance of the symbol, but they have enough context that if you were to share the story, it doesn't seem all that foreign or all that strange or all that weird. They can put the pieces together, and so publicly preaching the word of God, publicly proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ can make sense as a good method for evangelizing a lost world. But there's something else that's true about our context. We don't just have a high gospel context. We have a legal context that allows us to do this. We live in the United States of America. We have a constitution. And the very first amendment to the constitution, the first amendment, amendment says that Congress 
shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the exercise thereof. As a result, it is legal for you to publicly preach the word of God. It is legal for you to put it on social media. It is legal for you to leave gospel tracts on the ground or to use a slingshot and put it on somebody's porch. You can do that. It is legal to go door to door and to cold call witness people. It's legal for you to hold beliefs that other people oppose. It's legal for you to practice them publicly and privately. And for now, in our nation, you have the legal right. So you have a high gospel context. You have a legal context in which you're allowed to do these things. And many of our methods of evangelism work because of our cultural and legal context. But our culture is changing. So let's take a look at how our culture is changing. Because we have a legal right to evangelize, because we have a legal right to share our beliefs with other people, oftentimes Christians can weaponize their legal right and create really bad methodologies that hurt people. Let me give you an example. Just recently, here even in our own town, there was a gay pride rally. A lot of Christians, and I'm going to take that back, some Christians. Some Christians are using their legal right to go out and share the truth that you should repent or perish with signs at these rallies. Now they have a high gospel context. They believe that people should just understand the fullness of the gospel with that simple sign. They have the legal right to go out and do it. And yet when they go out there to do it, they're causing a lot more harm, a lot more damage to the individual because the method does not actually share the gospel. The method is sharing something different. When people go out of their way to be right, to make a point with a sign that conveys part of the message but doesn't have the whole message of the gospel, that is really bad practice. Because you are not doing what Jesus actually commanded you to do. Jesus commanded you to make a disciple, not to make a point. And if you're going to be a point maker, you can't be a disciple maker. I know that you know this because you all have been in relationships with other people. And you've been in a relationship with somebody who made a really good point and they were right. And it just spurned you. Ah! I don't care if you're right. I don't care if you're right. You know why? I don't care if you're right because I'm angry. Because of the way in which you made your point, I felt no love there. You can't win people to Jesus making points. You can't do it. But you can do it making disciples. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. It's a familiar passage to you, but I'm going to give you a different context. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love... I am only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries, all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, and love never 
fails. Friends, there's a lot of gospel methodology that fails because it's not coded in love. Love never fails. And love, by the way, can only be found in the context of a relationship with somebody else. Only in a relationship with someone else can love actually exist. A compassion for them, a losses for them, a deep sense of kinship with this person where you love them so much, you want them to know the truth that you know so they can have the life that you have in Jesus. And when love covers everything in what you do, it really changes your methodologies. You don't go out to make a point. Anybody can make a point. Anybody can say truth to people they don't care about. But when you really love somebody, the way in which you speak that truth changes. And the context in which you speak that truth begins to change. And that's what Paul is affirming. Yeah, you can have the cultural right. You can have the legal right. You aren't necessarily even 100% wrong. You got got half truth somewhere in there. But you lack love. So why bother? You're a clanging cymbal. You're a gong. You're a noisemaker. You're not a point point maker. You're You're not a disciple maker. When Jesus chose 12 men to journey with him, he chose them, and he loved them, and he spent life with them, and he shared with them, and he helped transform them, and it took time, and it took real sacrifice, and it took real relationships. That was his method. He evangelized through disciple-making, through, in, uh, through intentional relationship. And if you go out there and do it any other way, without a sense of context or relationship, you know what's going to happen? Eventually, you too, and all of us who are currently being associated, We're going to be called bigots, we're going to be called hate mongers, we'll be called hypocrites, we'll be considered out-of-touch lunatics because we speak truth without love, because we evangelize without relationship, because we have the good story of Jesus for them, forgetting that first and foremost is for us. And as a result, we are compelled by love because, guys, I got news, I'm not a bigot, I'm not a hypocrite, I'm not a hate monger, I love people, I love you, most of you. But the enemy will use what some Christians do, these bad methodologies, to create enough frustration in the world, enough cultural discontent in the world, that eventually the society in which you live will create laws that take away your legal right to do these things. And I need you to understand, without a great revival in the United States of America, sometime in our history, in our future history, your legal right to do this will disappear. And I'm not trying to, like, bang the fear gong. I'm just trying to tell you what is. Because it's happened in so many societies throughout history that as Christians forget that their first love is Jesus and that his primary drive is love for the lost and they start getting self-righteous and they start preaching cultural truth and they start telling people to conform or else, to repent or to perish and that God hates pride and all those other things. The world can no longer tolerate it and they'll contextualize the laws to silence you. And to take away your ability to have this opportunity to worship freely, to publicly declare your faith, because bad methodologies that hurt people eventually will be weaponized by the enemy to take away our public rights to do it. And that is happening. That's happening more and more and more. And that is our future. Please, just, I don't know, some of you will probably pass away before it comes to be. Some of you in this room are going to live through it. But it is on the horizon without great revival in our nation what happened to the apostle paul so here's what we need to do we need to implement jesus's method of evangelism now 
so that as we are doing it now, when the time comes where we can't use other methodologies without the fear of imprisonment or persecution, we are still learning how to love Jesus and evangelize a lost world. Because when culture changes, it can no longer tolerate the public methodologies, the bad methodologies which we use, because Satan has weaponized it against us. Imprisonment and persecution are on our way. And the Apostle Paul had this very experience. The first 20-some years of his ministry, he would go into towns and synagogues, he would preach the gospel, everybody there, some of them would come to believe as they put the pieces together, but those who didn't come to believe because he lived in a religious cultural context were very angry. Very angry, because unlike our context, which is non-religious, we're considered hate mongers and bigots. Paul was not that. Paul was considered a blasphemer, that he was somebody who was bringing a false theology, one that actually takes people away from God. So the Jewish people who heard the message that didn't have saving faith, didn't come to faith, they imprisoned him. When they put Paul in prison, uh, eventually the Roman officials decided to keep him imprisoned, and they sent him off to Rome to stand trial before Caesar because he was a Roman citizen. And for 20-some years of Paul's ministry, he could preach publicly, he could go about wherever he wanted and share the gospel, but the last two years of Paul's ministry, which I am going to argue were the most fruitful years of Paul's ministry, he spent under arrest. And here's why I believe it's the most fruitful. When you read the book of Acts, it gives you all the stories about Paul's journey, right? And it tells you all about the hardships he faced and how just a few people came to know Jesus and how much persecution he had. When you get to Acts 28, verse 30, Listen to what it says about Paul's final two years. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in Rome under house arrest, rented in in his own home, and he welcomed everyone who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God. He taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. When you hear that, it's tempting to think that Paul was able to kind of go anywhere he wanted throughout Rome and preach the gospel. That's not true. Uh, Paul had a house that he rented, is about five feet by eight feet. Okay, it's more like a shed. It's a shed that he rented, five feet by eight, normal Roman house at that time, the city of Rome. He was imprisoned, which means he had a chain on his left arm that was bolted to the floor in his house, maybe about six feet in circumference so he could move around and do some things. He had a Roman guard that was stationed outside of his home. The man was fully imprisoned, even though he was in a home of his own renting. But because he was in a home of his own renting and not the jail, people could come and visit him. And do you know what Paul had to do? Instead of going out and preaching publicly in the synagogues and convincing all the people in a high gospel cultural context that Jesus is the Messiah, Paul had to change his method and he had to spend real time with individuals in a one-on-one scenario who came into his home. And he only got to do that with people who came to visit him. He couldn't just go out and find a bunch of people anymore. He was no longer on a missionary journey. He was stuck with whoever came into his home. And anyone who came into his home, he shared the gospel story. He shared who Jesus was. He shared about the Messiah. He taught them all about Jesus. And as those people came to believe, Paul would then say, hey, by the way, it's time to go make disciples. And those people who are not in prison would go to their homes and do the same thing with their children or their families, and they would come to know Jesus. So effective was Paul's last two years of disciple-making evangelism that 250 years later, Rome adopts Christianity as its official religion. 250 years All because Paul decided to do what Jesus finally commanded him to do, which was to sit there and make disciples. Sit here, tell people about me, help them understand me, teach them to obey everything I've commanded. Oh, and then teach them to go do that with somebody else. Paul had a great ministry, very effective, started churches all over the place. But his most effective was in Rome when he got back to the master plan of evangelism of making disciples who make disciples. Friends, the gospel always spreads 
faster in countries where the gospel's not allowed because there is no probability for a public format. When you have public format, when you have these kinds of opportunities, these kinds of freedoms, we oftentimes forget the actual commandment of Jesus. He didn't tell you to go out there and start a Billy Graham evangelism crusade. He didn't tell you to knock on people's doors and read to them the five questions they should ask before they die. That's not what he asked. He told you to enter into a relationship with people and to make them into disciples. Because a relationship, when there is love there, the greater the love you have for one another, the more truth that relationship can withstand. And people begin to learn and understand and be transformed. Friends, as we conclude the journey, I'm going to show you a quick video. This is a video of some friends of mine who are uh, currently working overseas. And for those of you who are watching online, this actually concludes the service for you because I do not have permission to live stream this video on the internet. Uh, It can only be showed live in person to in-person services because of the nature and sensitivity of the folks who are working. So to protect our international worker friends and to keep them from imprisonment and persecution in their country, we're going to end the live stream. So friends online, go and make disciples as Jesus' method of evangelism. Hosting for this podcast has been brought to you by Anchor from Spotify. Our intro and outro song is Creative Mind by Ben Sound. us here at Grace Church. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.